Okay, I'd like to introduce Arthur Els. Um, again, somebody who you're all familiar with, talks regularly um, at these sorts of forums. Arthur was one of the first um, Sierras, or South African Sierras, and in that guise, he's going to give us a talk in terms of enterprise risk management, which is hopefully going to be topical given we've sketched a scenario of a world that's going to look significantly different going forward. And how does the CIRA qualification um, equip us to deal with that? And we've specifically highlighted in the annuity space that there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And hopefully we can apply those actuarial skills that we have to solving the problem rather than leaving it to others. And I suppose I'd just echo David's request for the actuarial society to provide input into all national treasuries sort of policy papers. When work gets done within a CISA, and I can speak because I'm part of that structure, it tends to come very much from a commercial side, and the sort of minority voice, which is the actuarial voice, is often sort of crowded out. And so it is really important that we continue to sort of state our relevance um, in these sort of national debates. Um, savings is definitely a space that actuaries should own, but I'll hand over to Arthur. Right. Thank you, Rowan. Okay, let's get kicking off. Enterprise risk management is such a massive field. It's really a massive field. So what I want to do is just pick up six lessons. Well, I hope some people are not going to use... Well, I hope you don't have to use the Gauw trainers often. From uh, got a notice reader. Please advise delegates that the Gauw train service is not operational for technical reasons. Delegates should make their own arrangements to travel to the airport. Note that the airport, that the highway to the airport is congested. Avoid missing their flights. Recommend delegates depart at least three hours prior to their flights. So I hope there are none of you that are using the car train this afternoon. Then if we do, where's our, where's our friend Costa? Costa, can you organize a bus for us? So, no, but really, uh, are there any of you that do need uh, uh, arrangements to get to the airport? I think let's just put up that. Okay, if, you do need to get, <laughs> if you do need to get to the airport, press 1. And if you... <laughs> If you don't need to get to the airport, press Nord. Thank you very much. Now, well, uh, let's put up the next slide. Uh, well, there we are, 52% needed. But obviously, thanks, the next slide, please. Oh, no, in fact, here we are. You can go back. Thank you. Let me show you my slides here. Thank you. You can take that off. Were you taken in by the scam about the car train? <laughs> press 1. Okay, that, what, the whole purpose of this introduction is to show you that we're all exposed to risk. Um, many of you came in a car train. I'm sure your first reaction was, wow, what am I going to do now? And then it must be a scam, very convenient. But there are other risks. The, the speaker comes up to me, Megan Butler. Did you realize you had risk of having, not having an audience? Had the car train really stopped? <laughs> and Marius the toy, you wouldn't have an audience, an audience either. But I would point to that, that little scenario was to illustrate that we're exposed to a whole number of risks. And the whole purpose of my presentation is, in fact, to pick up some of the elements of ERM, Enterprise Risk Management, and pick up six lessons from that that will help us as pensions actuaries. So I can't cover the whole field, and I'll just cover a few. Those are the qualifications, but have a look at that one, CIRA. CIRA is a new arrow in our quiver, actuarial quiver of pension funds. And what it does, it gives us skills to better analyze the risks, not only in pension funds, we deal with pension, but in the wider field as well. 
It's the qualification that takes us, us as actuaries, out of the financial field into the non-financial field. Exciting development. And as I go through, we'll pick that up to carry on. Right, my agenda, what I want to do is, what is ERM? What is, what is it really? Look at black swans. What about extreme events? They're very different to what we expect. And then have a look at a couple of risks. Do you personally, do you know to the extent to which you're exposed in the work you do as an actuary for pension funds? We'll pick some of those up. Nikki and a number of other people asked about solvency too. That is a major risk on the horizon. We'll pick that up and then have a look at governance. And then we'll conclude. So you can see it's very restricted. I'd love to talk a whole day on the various things, but we're just going to pick up those items that deal with pension funds and wider. Okay, these are the just references, the book Nudge, the two Sierra textbooks. And now I've taken a couple of articles out the actuary and some uh, papers to the Stable in Actuarial Society. So that's the basis. Okay, there are a couple of ERM risks. Do the ERM course, you consider those as some of the risks. Now one looks at them, you see financial, economic, you see liquidity, uh, a whole lot credit, the financial side. But there are a whole lot of non-financial risks. Look at this, fraud, moral risk, foreign exchange, politics. Those are actual risks. In fact, the ANC is talking now about bringing back prescribed investments, political risk. How many of those do you think apply to pension funds? A whole lot. One would think, well, pension funds are pretty restricted. But have a look at the red ones. Virtually all of those, market, economic, mortality, political, regulate, apply to pension funds. Now, there's the others, for example, reputational risk. I think that also applies to pension funds. In fact, virtually all of those apply to us in our roles as pension fund actuaries. There's, there have been a couple of comments. Well, we're in a DC fund. We don't have any risks. DB funds where all the risks are. And that is completely untrue. For example, losses due to poor admin. Admin is very, very important for DC funds. Here's Glenn Rand, our great friend, who made a real mess of the admin. Hundreds of funds. Financial accounts, Wayne arrears. And all Glenn Rand did is they liquidated the admin company. Just liquidated it. And those clients had to go find another administrator, catch up years and years of financial statements and bear the cost. Major risk for DC funds is the administration. Members unhappy with, ultimate, with the ultimate benefits. And that is, that is a catastrophe happening to happen. As you get more and more DC guys coming to retirement, and then going to the employer, say, I worked here for 30 years and all I get is a pension of 300 rand a month. Is that fair? Okay, poor investment returns. And of course, John mentioned before the behavioral finance side of it. Often the member chooses Member makes a mistake and blames the fund. So investment returns a major risk for DC. Members make the wrong investment choice. We've just seen a case recently, one of our clients. Uh, the market drops, moves into money market, goes up, moves into the balance fund, goes down, moves back, captures a loss. Members will blame funds. So those are major risks. The other one is the sponsor. Companies have this view that I have a DC fund, I step back, I pay contributions and that's it. There's a hang of a lot more risk to the employer than there is a lot of risk to the employer. For example, outsource pensioners. That, that slide I showed just now, pensioners would have been much better off in the fund. Those pensioners have approached the employer to come back and said, but you've outsourced us. We got these increases of 1.5% a year. We could have got 4 or 5. We want to come back. You say outsourcing pensioners doesn't mean the risk is removed. In fact, that's the same slide I showed. And as, as is, still 70% would have been in the fund. 
the other risk is, yeah, with the pension increases, I've covered that. Use of umbrella funds. First steps back and said, oh, I'm going to send all my employees off to an umbrella fund. National Treasury has pointed out the high cost of umbrella funds, reduction in benefits. And the final one, fraudulent losses. Now, we've had a couple of cases recently. For example, CMM, corporate money managers, money market investor who invested in property, caused a lot of losses. The grain future, the transfer joint fund, a couple of years ago. If a, if a member, an employee is unhappy with the pension benefits, the place to go is to the employer. He goes to a trustee, but doesn't get to enjoy the, he goes to the company. So employers, sponsors in DC funds have got major risks. Right, lesson one. Having been through all of that, what is the lesson to us as pension fund actuaries? ERM is extremely relevant for pension funds. It's important. It's another quiver in our, well, another arrow in our quiver to help us to do our job better. And what does that mean? Including DC funds. Right, well, that's it. Because it's, ERM is relevant to you. It's not a case of doesn't apply. But let's just go, what is ERM? When one talks about ERM, what is it? There are 10 principles, and I'll go through them. ERM says you manage all risks centrally. So the old idea of we've got a department that looks after foreign exchange, we've got another department that looks after collections, we've got another department that does that. That's disappeared. You need to manage your risks all of them, at a central point. This is important for actuaries. This is a big window of opportunity for actuaries. The zero qualification moves us out of the financial into the non-financial risks. So it equips you to look at operational risks. It equips you to look at governance risks. And we've come on, in fact, as Erica made the point earlier, actuary develops a special relationship. Now I'll pick that up. See. Holistically, the... the that goes with that one, but the, the, the risks are looked at as one global picture. And why is that? It's because it's very important to know the interaction between risks. For example, the insurance company sells term assurance on the one side and does annuity business on the other side. Bad mortality results in insured losses. Bad mortality results in annuity profits. So in fact, those two are a natural offset. You don't need to uh, take steps for both of them. So ERM says you look at the interaction between the risks. And of course, being in business means taking risks that you want to take. So ERM says you don't only look at downside, also look at the upside of risks. Often a risk has got a great potential upside. So that's taken into account. Having looked, identified the risks, then you fit our, our distributions. And actuaries are the ideal people to do that with a statistical background. So fit a distribution to the risks that you come across, run models, actuarial by nature, stress tests, what's the effect, and then decide which risks to keep and which to outsource. In other words, mitigate. You can see the process, mitigate the risks. And the risks that you, you want to keep, you hold capital. <laughs> we'll come in in a sec. Of course, that's the first First round, having been through the first round, you then get feedback and you do the round again. So you monitor regularly and adjust. And the next point is extremely important, is the actuary, whether the, 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 the ERM manager, is to embed a risk culture in the enterprise. It's not just the actuary and the chief risk officer doing their own little thing. ERM says you go to the board, you make them aware of the risk, you get their buy-in, you then float down. So eventually the clock sitting at the desk picks up 
a proposal and say, wow, this looks a bit strange. Let me go talk to my manager. So ERM <coughs> culture is inculcated right from the bottom up. And it's very important so that uh, you get this, this whole risk anti, well, not, not a risk averse, risk management culture. There's a risk control cycle, very much like the actuarial control cycle. Analyze the risks, uh, identify them, which are the main risks, place a value on them. In other words, now I've got an example soon. What do you do with the risks? You keep them, you insure, you decline them, you monitor them, get feedback, and you go around that cycle. That's the risk control cycle. So you can see it's a very planned way of addressing risks. One of the, the steps of of the addressing of risks, you draft this basic this risk register. And there's a very much basic sample. So, for example, there's a register with all the risks you've identified. For each one of them, we say, okay, this is a governance-type risk. This relates to pension funds. What's the description? It means a failure of the Board of Trustees to comply with King 3. King 3 applies to pension funds as well, not just Boards of Trustees. There's a risk we don't apply to King 3. If you don't apply comply with King 3, it can be very damaging for your fund. What's the likelihood in this particular fund? Well, we don't really have our systems in place, so there is a moderate risk we won't. What's the control measures? Well, in this particular fund, they've got a compliance officer who makes sure that meetings run well. So the bottom line is, there's a risk. It's red. It's a major risk. It's well controlled. Therefore, we don't need to do anything at that point in time. The, the risk is well controlled. You see, that's called our heat map. So have a look at this middle one. Regulatory, failure to comply with the law, that can have severe impact. What's the probability? It's quite high in this particular fund. Are there any control measures? We very, very little. Bottom line, it's a dangerous risk. Nothing's been done about it. It's very dangerous. So, Mr. Smith, this is an immediate task you need to address immediately. Report back next week what you've done. You see that risk register then gives the trustees or the board of directors a very easy mode of seeing which are the major risks, which need to be addressed now, which can be taken, which can take a little bit more time. So risk register is a, is a very important tool, and we can use that for pension funds. As I've done here, I've got the project, DC project, etc. Okay, now, having identified the risks and decided we want to keep this risk, don't want to keep it, you've got a choice. You either retain the risk or you transfer it or you close that line of business. If it's just too risky, you get out of that business completely. Now, say you do decide to retain the risk. How do you decide how much capital to keep? Uh, do I need 100 million? Do you need 10 million? Various measures. One is the VAR. In other words, it's the maximum loss you would expect over a period with 99.5% confidence. Expected shortfall, having crossed the 99.5%. In other words, you're in the tail. What's the average loss that you expected? Those are just two. One's got to be very careful, though, in interpreting these. All very well at having a black box, out pops a bar. Let's look at JP Morgan's current debacle. It's a, this is a recent one. They made a big loss on a, a hedging, hedge trading uh, transaction. This is Reuters, what, May 15, when it first appeared. J.P. Morgan loss shows risk in a safe haven bank. J.P. Morgan, in fact, developed VAR. And they're known as one of the risk-averse banks. And Reuters then said J.P. Morgan and Company's $2 billion plus loss. So it was $2 billion at that stage, around about May. And then it carries on. The maximum amount of money J.P. Morgan expected the unit losing one day, the so-called VAR. 
So they were using VAR. In other words, they'd worked out what their maximum loss would be in a day uh, with 99.5% confidence. That worked out at 77 million. End of last year, they said, this unit, maximum you can lose in a day is 77 million. We'll set aside some capital, and off you go. Last Friday, the loss is $6 billion. And the massive difference between 77 million VAR and 6 billion actual dollars. And the question, of course, says, wow, is this ERM a lot of hogwash? Is VAR a valid risk measure? And the answer, of course, is, yeah, it is a valid risk measure, but it's only one of a number of tools. Like anything, you do a range of tools and you apply judgment. To be fair, though, the JPM loss, VAR looks at market volatility. In other words, rates of interest change, what can we make a lot? The JP Morgan loss involved fraudulent financial reporting. So it was more than just market movement. But JP Morgan have picked up a $6 billion loss and, and rising. So the, 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 the moral behind that is ERM is well and good. However, you've got to be very careful in applying judgment to what you see. The, the, the other part of the ERM studies is copulas. Before I did the series studies, I didn't know what a copula was. Uh, my apologies. Now I know what it is. Okay. Each risk, we've got that list of risks, mortality, uh, rates of interest, uh, fraud, politics, etc. Each one of those has got its own distribution, if there's a distribution. So you've got all these various elements within the enterprise. That one's making a loss according to this distribution, that one. Very different distributions. How does one, and some risks may offset each other, how does one determine how much capital to use for the overall enterprise? You've got all these risks busy going the various directions. That's where the copula comes in. What a copula does, it estimates the net overall effect. So, JP Morgan, you've got these various operating operations. You've got a banking section, a retail section. The copula will look at the whole lot and bring them together. And uh, the various copulas, a Clayton, Gumball, Gauss. Uh, Clayton brings back good memories. That's the one they asked when I set the Siri exam. Uh, thank goodness that that was in there. But a copula allows you to look at the overall enterprise and arrive at a capital for that enterprise. That's a capital you set aside for that enterprise. Okay, so capital is based on net effect. Lesson two, having looked at ERM principles, all these principles can be applied in a pension fund. In fact, risk techniques have advanced tremendously. And we as actuaries need to keep up to date to apply that to our clients. Now, we, we've got... Uh, and then the moral beside that is, roll for the Siri exam and get up to date. There are other, uh, other, other professions, the auditors in particular, do ERM. The big four have got an ERM uh, section. Difference between the actuary's ERM, the accounting ERM, is that the, the accountant looks at the interests of the shareholders. In other words, what's going to affect the performance of the company? We need to protect against big losses so that the dividends aren't affected. The actuary approaches it from long-term sustainability. Not so much performance, but to allow the company, the enterprise to continue. And that's a major difference. We've got those skills. We, can, we, know, we understand distributions. We can do models. We've got our financial background. Who better to look at risk than your local actuary? Right, that's lesson two. Going on to black swans. 
In other words, extreme value. Part of the Sira course is a look at what happens if the unlike well, the virtually impossible happens. Here are a couple of examples. 2008 credit crisis, liquidity, rates of interest, everything moved in tandem and we had a crisis. The recent Japan tsunami, nuclear meltdown tsunami, and we read last week, plus the human error, apparently a nuclear meltdown, large part of it was due to human error, so all of that came together, disaster, the Eurozone crisis. The, the, what Extreme Value does, there's our distribution, example longevity, whatever it is, we've got our distribution, and normally one would expect, well, you've got the tail there, it thins out, and... The chances of that happening aren't very great, but even if it does happen, it doesn't really matter. What extreme value theory does, it looks at that tail. Surprise, surprise. That tail has its own distribution. So when you get to there, this stops, and another distribution takes over in the tail. And there's, there's three examples of what the tail could look like, called extreme value distributions. And uh, Professor Embrecht's very heavily involved. There's the formula for the GEV, the Generalized Extreme Value Formula. That applies at the tails. You've got your distribution, at the tails that kicks in. See, it looks very different to what most of us expect. Another example of, of extreme values, where, in other words, the perfect storm, is the Equitable Insurance Company, formed in 1762 in the UK, and went into liquidation about eight, nine years ago. See so what happened at the Equitable. Equitable offered guaranteed annuity rates at maturity. In other words, if I took out a policy with equitable, equitable today, age 30, paid contributions, when I got to age 60 or 65, they would guarantee me a pension based on a rate of interest of 7%. It was 4%, went to 7% in 1975. So they'd given this guarantee. At the stage, 1975 rates of interest were 15%, so 7% appeared to be no problem. Let's give a guarantee. However, prevailing rates dropped. They dropped below the 7%. It's the first thing that happened. Secondly, the company actually didn't take immediate steps. Hope for the best. Things will get better. Thirdly, when the auditors asked about this risk, a fraudulent asset was put in the book. It was a reinsurance treaty that was mentioned in the accounts, which didn't exist later. And when the actuary and the board decided to take action, they relied on the policy wording. It was to do with a terminal bonus. For this, the group who called on the 7% would simply take their terminal bonus away. Unfortunately, when actually the policyholders went to court, he had policyholders who refused to sit down and be taken advantage of. And finally, the court kicked out Ecuador's interpretation of the policy wording. He said, that's nonsense. How can you take away the terminal bonus if somebody calls in a guarantee and not for the others? Net result, founded in 1762, the Equitable closed its doors to business in 2000. And for us, the actuaries are found guilty of unprofessional conduct by the Institute. You can see there, there's a perfect storm. When you get into that tale, in fact, yeah, lesson three. What does extreme value theory from ERM teach us? Extreme situations, normal correlations don't apply. In extreme situations, things that were completely uncorrelated suddenly become correlated. So expect, expect each one of us is going to come across situations like this, although we didn't expect it. 
but it's going to happen to each one of us. I think 2008 was a, was a case we've all been through with a credit crisis. Yeah, with a credit crisis. But there are going to come times in your career when your pension fund client goes through a difficult time. And often something happens, something else would offset it, and suddenly all the circumstances come down. Uh, you've just got to go through that uh, and, and, and uh, be ethical about it. They know, but they're going to be extreme values where things are going to be very different to what you expected. This is a very important one. You are at risk personally. For example, when I started, I said, who needs a car train? Uh, who's going back in a car train? Now, we hadn't thought about where we are. If you come, all the Capetonians and Pretorians and that want to need the car train, you are at risk. You don't realize it until something happens. And what ERM does, it gives you a structured way of addressing risks. I want to look at the risks that you and I are exposed to as pension fund actuaries. First, you've got a question. Okay, and if you can use your little... Uh, in fact, can we put up the question? How much PI cover? If there were a claim, a client came to you and said, you made a mess of a calculation, we've lost 50 million rand, we're going to sue you or your company. How much PI cover have you got? A claim, now you received a letter, 150 million. How much PI cover would you have? So please answer, if you don't know, you don't have any cover, push one. The cover is 1 to 10 million, push 2, 11 to 53, if it's 50 plus, press 4. Just to get an indication of the cover we've got. Thank you. Oh, is that it really? 40. Okay, 23% don't know. 19%, 1 to 10, 50, 90. What's important are these, the 23%. ERM says you identify the risks, you take steps. I'd recommend to the 23%... Go back tonight, have a look at your PI policy, because these things come to bite you when you least expect it. I'll do it tomorrow the year after. So make sure you've got your PI cover in place, and you'll see why in a sec why you need the PI cover. Now, 40% got 50 million plus, good. But I'd, I'd say to these at the bottom, have a look. It used to be a view. If a client is unhappy, they go for the ones with the deepest pocket. In other words, I shouldn't have any cover, because if I've got cover, they're going to sue me. You're going to be sued anyhow, and you lose your house, you lose your car, you lose everything, because you're appointed as in your personal capacity as evaluator. And is it fair a client incurs a loss because I made a mistake? It's only fair that I have insurance in place to compensate the client. So it's really a two-way street. You've got to be fair to the client by making sure the client can be compensated. If things do go wrong, and there are going to be, every single one of us will make a mistake. Every single one of us will go to a client and say, Mr. Client, I made a mistake. That figure of 2 million should really be 3 million or 10 million, whatever it is. I do apologize. Maybe they can reverse the decision and it means nothing. But if they incur a loss, you've got to have in place a mechanism to compensate the client. So the thing about not having cover, I'd recommend you get cover. If you haven't got cover, find out how much it is. It might be too little and have it pushed up into PR cover isn't all that expensive, but it's very important. Okay, thank you. We can move back to the presentation. This is, I want to pick up Eric's point a bit earlier. This is an article from the Actuary, March 2012. Uh, this chap said, the Actuary has an important role in helping trustees. We are not appointed solely for funding. Our understanding of what makes pension schemes works, work gives us a unique insight. That is that, that is so true. You'll find as you do with a pension fund, you get to know more about the fund, the trustees rely on you. In fact, let me just go. 
Special insights lead to the trustees rely on the actuary, and Eric made the point. Actuary becomes more involved in non-financial issues, governance issues. Sometimes the actuary appears in court as an expert witness for the fund. I think a lot of us have done that. There's a dispute between a fund and a client. We'll call the actuary in to give advice on behalf of the fund. Over the passage of time, you'll find, as you get to know the fund better, you become the fount of all knowledge. So you develop a special relationship with your funds. What does this do? This all sets you up as a target for disgruntled members and stakeholders. Chap doesn't like what the funds paid him. His benefit's too small. Uh, the, the trustees say, well, they actually calculated the benefit in terms of the rules. That member, remember when it comes to money, logic goes out. Especially when it comes to a member wanting money, logic goes out the window. I want my money, whether I'm entitled to it or not, I want it. The actuary says you can't get it. Sue the actuary. So, it applies especially to, to consulting actuaries. We be, we're very exposed to this. And this grantor member looks for somebody to attack. And what I found over the years, uh, your consulting actuary particularly, often you get called in where there's a dispute. Two, guy, two parties are at war. Trustees are at war with a member. Two funds are at war. You get called in to give advice. Expect a few bruises from time to time. You're going to get dragged into this thing. And the other side's not happy with what you say. There's an outcome. We don't like it. That guy acted unprofessionally, etc. So expect that there are going to be some complaints to the actuarial society. If you're involved in other people's disputes, you will be dragged in. Some complaints, unfounded, hopefully unfounded, complaints to the actuarial society, the pension fund adjudicator. And the other thing is the law can be fickle. Depends on the judge. If you, if you have one judge who makes one ruling, you make another judge makes another ruling, and they're technicalities. So even if you're innocent, no guarantee you'll be found not guilty. So it's important to have your PI cover in place. Okay, lesson four. As a fund actuary, you're a prime target for disgruntled stakeholders because of your special relationship. Act ethically and have your PI in place. Okay, moving on. Now this is, solvency two is a major issue. So it's a tsunami coming over the horizon, we just don't see it yet. And hopefully it'll never appear. Currently, when you do a pension fund valuation, solvency position PF117 sets out the solvency reserves. You've got your formula, you apply them. The fund is financially sound, even if it hasn't a solvency reserve. If it's financially sound on a best estimate basis, it's acceptable to the FSB. So the solvency reserves have little impact on the employer. Where the fund's got it, it's good. If it's got it, it's a bit more cushion. It's a bit more protected. But the employer doesn't get involved in the fund issues, unless the fund's severely underfunded. But I'm talking about a fund that's well managed. So solvency reserves at the moment currently don't really affect the employer. The fund carries on on its, on its own way. Under solvency too, capital is going to be required in respect of pensions business. In other words, if a fund or insurer's got pension, uh, yes, insurer, and I've asked a number of insurance company annuities actuaries what the effect is. Nobody knows yet. There's likely to be additional capital, either from the in insurance company, or in the case of a fund, the fund has got extra money, the sponsor of the pension fund might be called a... Now, it's not yet known. I'll tell you why it's not yet known. Because... Oh, let me first go back to that. What's the effect of solvency too likely to be? This is Deloitte's. 
advisors Deloitte have calculated that the current proposal, that's um, to a solvency two, would force insurers to hold an extra 550 billion pounds in capital and cut annuity payments by 20%. So that means if solvency two comes and applies to the insurers, the annuity rates that they offer are likely to be reduced. They're going to have to hold more capital. So that's why the Association of British Insurers says Solvency II shouldn't require insurers to take market volatility into account. But the Lloyds have said there are big changes taking place. Minister Pensions in the UK, when was this? This was June, four weeks ago. Minister Webb, uh, Steve Webb. There will be no compromise by the UK government in its opposition to proposed EU-wide solvency requirements for pension funds. The UK government has made it, made it quite clear it's not going to allow solvency to, to affect its pensions business because of those capital requirements, which affect pensioners. Right, so if solvency too does come in for annuity business, that's just how pension funds suddenly receive a directive tomorrow to say, listen, solvency to applies to you, Mr. Actuary, work out the capital required. DB funds with pensioners, capital will be required. The only place it will be will be the sponsor. The sponsor will need to have more capital. DC funds, this is an interesting one. Does it affect DC funds? There will be a reduction in the pension from the insurer. And that's going to encourage people to go to living annuities. The DC funds, a chap retires with his money, currently can buy a pension of 1,000 rand a month. Solvency 2 comes in, he gets 800 rand a month. It's going to encourage people to move to living annuities. So the bottom line is, we're the regulator here, Marius, Christian, here, Sam, which is a South African equivalent of Solvency 2, must not be made to apply to pension funds or annuity business. The losers are the pensioners. So lesson five, Sam, Solvency 2, Sam is a South African, is a Solvency assessment. That's the South African equivalent. Holds huge dangers for pension funds. Prepare your clients for the potential impact. We don't know whether it's going to apply or not. As you see, the UK is very much against it. I don't think it would come in. But just be aware there's a danger it could come in. Right, the last section. Oh, I'm going quite fast. Right, governance. Now, governance covers many aspects. Let's see how it affects us as pensions, actually. Yeah, governance, compliance, training, communication, fraud, moral hazard, all of those things, non-financial things. And I just want to pick up three aspects of it that affect us as pensions actuaries. Let's pick up treating customers fairly. Secondly is minutes of meetings and fraud. Now those would seem negligible, negligible things to be worried about. But let me just draw your attention to what can go wrong. Okay, issues affecting the actuary. Treating customers fairly. Here we are. I want to sketch a scenario and I want you to give me your reply. Here's a scenario. A DB fund pensioner, a chap retires from a DB fund, is now a pensioner in receipt of a pension. He gets divorced at age 75. In terms of the rules of the fund, his wife of many years is no longer eligible. So if he's no longer an eligible spouse, will not get a pension on his death. He dies. The ex-spouse is destitute. Are the rules fair? I'd just like your uh, feedback on this. Uh, now we've got a table there. Could I? There we are. Do you think it's fair if you use your pair? No, I just want to see whether there's a difference in view between males and females to this particular. Because you got this guy who went off with a young girl and now left his long-serving wife. If, he, if you're female 
And you think it's fair, vote 1. If you're female, not fair, vote 2. Male, vote 3. Male, not fair, 4. So I hope you can just do your voting at 4 seconds to go. Oh, interesting. <laughs> okay, fair. That, that is interesting. So what we said is, there's only one, probably about three females here think it's fair. Oh, no, that's right. 20% of the, the ladies in the audience think it's not fair. That, uh, <laughs> that's right, not fair. Uh, 20% think it's not fair. And 46% of the males think it's not fair. 46, not fair. No, that's, that is right. Huh? <laughs> oh, okay, okay, yeah, I see what you say. Oh, no. Oh, no, okay, you're right. You're right. What we're saying is more males think it's unfair than think it's fair. And the females are, females are saying to not fair and fair. Okay, that's interesting. So, in other words, the majority of the people here think it isn't fair. That, that's, that's why we read that. That's, that's quite interesting. I'm glad to see you've got actuaries with hearts here. <laughs> but that, that, that's a typical case where there's no right answer. This, this particular one went to the Retirement Matters Committee for their, their view. And there was a range of responses. Some of the people felt it was indeed not fair. It was an unfair rule. Others said the job of the trustees is to apply the rules, not to, not to look for, not to judge the fairness of the rules. And then somebody else said, well, the rule is fair. The spouse should have sorted out her benefits in a divorce agreement. So, so, so those people who voted fair and those who voted not fair, there isn't a right one. It's very much a personal, a personal view. But the, the coming out of this is, as far as treating customers fairly goes, and there are going to be times, and I'm sure you've had many times, where the chairman of trustees said, we've got an issue here. I don't know if it's fair or not. Mr. Actuary or Mrs. Actuary, do you think it's fair? You, you've got a duty of public interest. You need to speak up. You can't sit back and sit on the fence. And unfortunately, the client isn't always going to appreciate your candor. And that's a risk you take, going against the chairman. But you need to speak up, as long as you, you believe in what you say. But they're treating customers fairly. There's no right or wrong answer, but you, you've got a duty to make sure everybody's treated fairly. Another one affecting the actuaries is minutes of trustee meetings. Now, these are so important. Ensure that the decisions that you act on, trustees say to you, you make a recommendation. Eric says, I recommend a pension increase of six because we got surplus in the fund and they, they agree to it. Make sure that's minuted. I'll tell you why, because I've been involved in a very recent case where the FSB's come back and asked for minutes of a trustee meeting in 2000. This is Mr. Arlo. Where's Christian? Not here. And he was quite right. He wanted to check that surplus hadn't been used before the magic date of 7 December 2001. Unfortunately, this client keeps good minutes, and here it was, and that's it's in it. The general reserve will be distributed out. So if, make sure that your decisions are minuted. And the bottom line there says, this is particularly important if, if there's a complaint against you. If it goes to court and uh, the, the disgruntled person says, that actually did something that he wasn't empowered to do. Yes, but the trustees agreed. Make sure it's minuted. Those little, little things in the documents protect you tremendously. Okay, so as far as minutes of meetings here, make sure everything's minuted. And the final issue is fraud. That is a risk in, 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 in funds. Greed or need can tempt every one of us to commit fraud. Now, I'd like to think that I could never commit fraud, but I, I myself or yourself, if your children, your wife, 
your mother, your brother doesn't have food, you, you're tempted to do it. You need systems. So, but each one of us has the, the capacity to do something. We need systems to protect it. And don't be surprised when a trusted member of the client or the service provider commits fraud. I've seen people commit fraud that I would trust my life to. So you are going to come across fraud. Now you say, well, I'm an actuary, or I'm evaluated to the fund. What's fraud got to do with me? But you've got a special relationship with the fund. You've got a 360-degree view of the fund. And part of your duty to mitigate risk in the fund is to keep your radar and to report it. So fraud is something that you're going to come across, and you need to report it as well. Right, the last lesson. Governance covers the soft issues, not the financial issues, etc. covers, but shortcuts here can come back to haunt. Things aren't monitored, people aren't treated fairly, they'll come back. They won't bite the trustees, they'll come bite you because of your special relationship and your knowledge of the fund. So ensure that the governance at your client and at your own office. Remember, things don't always happen at the client. There's often the service provider, there's somebody busy trying to take money or somebody in your own office who might be trying something. Be aware, fraud is, is a major risk. Right, conclusion. This is my message to all of you. Dear pension actuaries, brief overview has yielded the following lessons, and those of them. ERM is relevant for every one of us here. The principles will assist us. You can see how that overall picture of addressing risks comes in very handy. Did any of you ever think about the car train not running? Megan, did you think about not having an audience? ERM would have helped you to look at that. <laughs> Principles are important. Events in the tales can be very different. Just be beware that uh, they can be different. Check your PI covers in place. Make sure that's there. It's no good having it put in place after the horse is bolted. Solvency 2 does have a whole grave dangers, and we're hoping that our legislator will be sensible in that regard. Beware of governance issues. They can affect you. Right, so ERNM is an exciting extension of our work as pensions actuaries. It allows us, in fact, it allows us to move out the pensions field too to the corporate, the company. So grasp this new concept and enhance your skill set and make a difference. Yours, Arthur Els. And that's from me. Thank you. Thanks, Arthur. Are there any questions from the floor? Um, Arthur, I was a bit worried about your comments on solvency. You know, I, I would have thought that the, the ERM process would have taught you about the dangers. So solvency would force an insurer to hold capital against an operational risk. So surely a pension fund, in your example, should have been holding capital against a Glen Rand admin failure. Now, that to me isn't a bad thing. You know, that's all about protecting members of funds. And so, you know, I'm, I'm worried, you know, that you, you sort of saying that solvency is a bad thing. And do you believe then that pension actuaries should ex ignore the solvency rules which life actuaries are, are asked to follow? Right, if I can answer that, the, the first thing is that the pension fund only has the assets it has. So if solvency do comes along and says we need an extra 200 million rand of capital, where does it come from? Now, the... We don't have that money for a start. Secondly, where, where, what happens with that money once the need goes? In other words, the fund wound down, pensions are paid out. Where does that money go to? Who does it belong to? So, therefore, we don't have the money. 
hasn't got an owner. But there are other issues as far as pension fund goes that life in, doesn't affect life insurance companies. One of the big issues that pension funds do perform, one of the valuable roles, and why the UK is so against it, is that a pension fund performs a social role. The insurance company is a profit-making organization for the shareholders and they'll make as much as they can. A pension fund isn't a profit-making organization. pension fund fulfills the role of providing income to people who've retired. So there's a whole different dimension to pension funds. So therefore the requirements that apply to a profit-making organization are different to the requirements that apply to a pension fund. Now one can ask, well, what happens if a fund goes into deficit? We write it out. We've written it out for the last hundred years. We've written it out through 2003, 2008. So pension funds are able to withstand those. And therefore, different requirements apply. Now, certainly solvency too is there to protect the, the insurance company banks becoming uh, insolvent. But there are different requirements. So I am against solvency too for pension funds because firstly, there is no money. Do you want pension funds to disappear? And secondly, we saw that the annuity is going to be 20% less. Who are the ones that are going to lose? The pensioners are the ones that are going to lose. Okay, that's, that's my answer. Okay, there's a question over there. Arthur, a um, couple of questions. Um, first one, on the, the writing it out. The latest from the California Defined Benefit Pension Fund. Pension funds in deficit, I think, by $150 billion. How do you write out that? Secondly, uh, you spoke about the 20% fall in annuity rates, why people would push to uh, providing it through the fund or living annuity. Now, in the context of ERM, you advise your clients do that 10 years from now develop a cure for cancer, then what? Then you're the one going back to your client saying, unforeseen risk. So I'm, trying, I'm struggling to put these concepts together. Okay, I think let's pick up the first one. I think we've got to be very careful about comparing ourselves to the UK, to the US, etc. One of the things in the UK was that you couldn't have surplus more than 10%. It had to be refunded to the employer. That's never been the case in South Africa. In fact, South African DB funds are, are fully funded. So we've had a different environment here, and that's the way it should be. The legislator had interfered there and it's gone. Uh, the second point is, you, what ERM does, it has a look at these risks and then identifies them and places a value on how serious they are. Now one can only do what one knows about. There might be a cure for AIDS tomorrow, which means that pensioners live longer. It could be a, uh, a plague tomorrow, which kills pensioners. So what you've got to do is identify there is a possibility of pensioners living longer, but you can't take steps for everything. You're aware of it, and as time goes on, you get closer. It looks like it's going to be okay. We need to do something. So it's a continuous monitoring process. But it's better than not trying to identify, which is the case at the moment. You know, we carry on. If something happens, then we make an adjustment there. And what ERM does is tries to give you a telescope into the future and slowly monitor and, and make changes. So it's not to be all an end-all, but it's better than nothing. I expect to see all at the CRE exam in September. I think just to allay fears about solvency, uh, those numbers are from the UK, which is really where they're banking an equity risk relative to a bond risk. So they're assuming equities will return 2 to 3% more than bonds, and so they're going to have to rebase their valuations. In South Africa, we've had the quiz exams. Um, Christian's probably closer to the numbers, but I can assure you that 
our insurance companies are well capitalized and you're not going to see those sorts of numbers in South Africa. Sorry, Mr. Speaker. In fact, preparing for this presentation, I contacted two of the actuaries at the largest insurers and asked them about this. They're not sure what the effect's going to be. They're hoping that they're fully capitalized, but nobody's quite sure yet. It, it's, it's an unknown. So, and that's our point of this, to say there's something happening. Hopefully it won't affect it, but do be aware there is a problem. Thanks, Arthur. Thank you very much. All right, um, for those of you who are going early, please fill in your... Um, forms, your feedback forms, because it's really valuable in terms of future seminars and uh, what we put on, on, on the sort of agendas. Um, I'd like to introduce our next speaker, Megan Butler. Um, she started her work at Old Mutual within the research area at OMAC. Um, she decided to take a bit of time off out of the corporate world and collected an MSc at WITS and now continues to lecture there but also works part-time at Alexander Forbes still in a research-type function. Um, Megan spent a great deal of, of time trying to debunk a lot of the urban legends that exist within particularly the DC retirement um, environment, and she's going to give us some more insight in terms of how we need to challenge the sort of conventional wisdom in, in that sort of space. So before she starts, I'd like to sort of just test some of two of those sort of urban, urban myths, so if we can just get, get the questions up. All right, so what do you think a reasonable lifetime contribution rate is uh, the contribution to retirement funding for a member? 12 and a half, 15, 17 and a half, or 20 of gross salary. So only 6% think the existing contribution rate as per the latest Sunland surveys is about right. Um, and then the final, final one that I'm sure we'll look to de debunk what is a reasonable target for a young member to plan a comfortable retirement? Um, the replacement ratio should be 70, 75, 80, or 100 of gross salary. I think the good news for Megan is that most of you seem to have been reading her papers. Thanks, Rowan, and um, thanks to Arthur for waking the audience up. Um, for those of you who thought you were going to have the long walk to the airport, I'm sure you're glad to know the car train still is running. So a lot of the presentations today have been about the post-retirement phase, what to do at retirement, what to do about annuitization. What I'm talking about today is the pre-retirement phase. So what is the financial position of DC fund members before they reach retirement, and what should we be doing about it? My presentation is actually in three parts. I'm going to start off by talking about model point members, so stylized members so we can actually understand what it is in the environment that's driving their financial position, before starting to look at real members from real funds, see what position they're in, and then talking about some of the responses we can have. So let's start off with our model point members. So we track three hypothetical members. Say we have three guys who are aged 30, 40, and 50 on the 1st of January 2002, and on that date, they're all on track to get their 75% replacement ratio, which is what most funds use and they're set to retire at age 65. They're contributing 13.3%, which is our average contribution rate in our funds. And then each quarter, we recalculate what their projected replacement ratio is, assuming that they're getting large manager watch investment returns, salary growth of actual inflation plus one plus a merit scale, annuity prices that are determined by bond yields as bond yields change, and assuming, and this is very realistic, that the member does absolutely nothing in order to manage their benefit. And then you get the pensions index. 
and the picture isn't pretty. You can see on the 1st of January 2002 that all three of those hypothetical members are on track for a 75% replacement ratio. And over time, that's just gradually fallen away. As of 30 June 2012, our member born in 1952, who's currently 60 and a half years old, is on track to re receive a replacement ratio somewhere under 60%. The 1962 member is now expecting to get a replacement ratio slightly under 50%. And the member born in 1972, so those are your 40-year-olds, are on track to replace just over 40% of their income when they retire. The generational effect is quite startling. And it's very obvious when you think about it, but younger members do have much more sensitive projected replacement ratios just because the duration of that liability is so much longer. The sad thing is, though, that younger members tend not to think about or worry about retirement, despite the fact that they're actually the best place to do something about it. And the situation does get rapidly out of control. This is the additional contribution that would be required from the date that we measured the index up to the retirement date to get the member back on track for that 75% replacement ratio. Now, the member born in 1972, the green line, would need to contribute just under 20% of their salary in addition to the 13.3% that they're already contributing. And if that sounds bad, the member born in 1952 would need to come up with pretty much two-thirds of their salary being contributed to retirement funding in order to get back on that 75% replacement ratio. And you can see the very rapid increase in that contribution rate as the time to retirement just gets so much shorter. So why is this happening? Well, obviously, it's due to recent, recent adverse experience. And we track two factors, the low investment returns relative to salary growth and the movements in bond yields. Now, the bond yields feed through to expected replacement ratios in two ways. Firstly, it gives an indication of lower investment returns going forward. And secondly, it leads to higher annuity prices in retirement. And when you do the attribution on the total change in those projected replacement ratios, you can see that most of it is not due to the adverse investment experience. In fact, the investment return in excess of salary inflation has been pretty much as we expected. However, it's the bond yield movements which have driven up annuity prices and lowered our expectations of investment returns going forward, which have really eaten away at that expected replacement ratio. And what for me is the most striking about this is that those bond effects aren't effects that are immediately apparent to members. Members would know if, invest if their accumulated credit had dropped. They would do something about it. But the change in bond yields the fact that your future investment returns are going to be lower and the annuity you're going to buy in 30 years' time at retirement is going to be more expensive is not going to be immediately obvious to members. The hard truth is that saving a fixed amount of salary and just meeting a return objective over the long term alone is not going to guarantee a good income in retirement. And maximizing investment return is not the same as matching to liability or maximizing the retirement benefit. And something that members and funds should be doing is regularly reassessing their progress in order to take corrective action before matters get too out of hand. So that's the hypothetical. That's the stylized model um, point members. What about actual fund members? Does their position look any different? Well, unfortunately, no. In the really, really tiny print, you might be able to see that these are the projected replacement ratios 
of real fund members. This is over 700,000 DC fund members. And on the left-hand side, see if I can point this, you've got the 20 to 30-year-old members. And on the right-hand side, you've got your 60-year-olds. Now, in theory, your 60-year-olds have had time to not preserve, they've had time to take all their money out of the fund. But you can see that about 10% of those 60-year-olds are on track to get a replacement ratio of 75% or more. That's pretty good. Look at our 20 to 30-year-olds. Only, what is that, 2 to 3% of them are on track to get a 75% replacement ratio. There's something seriously wrong in terms of fund design if you're getting that sort of picture. And only about 15% of our youngest members would be on track to replace at least 60% of their income in retirement. However, those average replacement ratios hide a huge amount of industry variation. And the projected replacement ratios differed incredibly strongly by industry. Municipalities, governments, and NGOs offered the highest projected replacement ratios. Replacement ratios of about 70% on average. If you're unfortunate enough to work in the energy sector, you could probably expect a replacement ratio of only about half of that. So certain employers in certain industries seem to be making better choices than others. I'm really glad that we had the, the question about the contribution rate, because although the average contribution rate has been increasing over time, on average our funds are paying about 13.5%, you actually need about 19.8% to go to retirement funding from the age of 25 in order to be able to retire at 65 with a 75% replacement ratio. And as we had in the straw poll at the beginning, the 75% replacement ratio might not even be enough. So we certainly need to be contributing a lot more. In terms of preservation, despite extensive industry efforts, preservation rates aren't increasing that much. So the purple line represents experience in 2008, and the bars represent the experience in 2011. Our older members seem to be preserving a lot more, but at the younger ages, where it really counts, we're not seeing great improvements in preservation. On average, each member only preserves about 7.7% of their benefit, and they lose 10% of their benefits due to tax every time they take it in cash. In terms of retirement ages, the average retirement age is currently 60.9 years, which is up from the 2008 average of 60.4 years. The average replacement ratio of retirees during 2011 was 31.7%, so still not great. It is encouraging that 65 is now the modal retirement age in funds. However, we probably need to be doing a bit more to encourage people to be retiring later. The death benefit um, picture is also um, fairly negative because we often say, you know, if someone's short in their retirement funding, why don't you just juggle with the, with the death benefits? The problem is that just under 80% of members are seriously underinsured on their death benefits. In fact, most retirement fund members are between 50% and 75% underinsured on their death benefit. Younger members fare the worst, not surprisingly, because their accumulated credits are so low. So your average 20 to 25-year-old is between 72 and 76% underfunded on their death benefit. Your older members, who've been working for over 25 years, tend to do all right because they have high accumulated credits. But remember that first slide where we showed you the distribution of replacement ratios at the different ages? Our current generation of older members is actually pretty well funded. We're not expecting future generations to have nearly that amount. 
in accumulated credits when they head towards retirement age. So what should we be doing about it? And we've got a couple of options. I mean, is it a question of patching up the current system, fixing some holes, and maybe it will take care of itself? Is it a case of maybe, as an industry and as a profession, we need to change our spots? Or do we actually need an entirely different solution with an entirely different shape to it? So hopefully technology will be with me. If you were to advise clients to do one thing in order to improve the retirement readiness of their members, what would you advise them to do? One, would you tell them to start adjusting contributions? That includes making contributions more flexible. Would you start talking to them about extending the retirement age? Would you consider better asset liability modeling or liability-driven investment? Would you improve the communication? Or would you do nothing? The market would correct or do nothing and hope that retirement reform will take care of everything. Okay, so 39% of you think that adjusting contributions is the way forward. I'm glad. I hope you think it's upwards. 28% um, want to extend their retirement age. And a smattering thinks that the solution lies in investments. And almost 20% of you think that improving communications is important. That's great. So if we can go back to the main slides. So, most of you thought that contribution adjustments was the way forward. And of course, flexibility of, of benefits in a DC fund is a common theme. Because in a DC fund, the member carries the risk. And hence, there's at least an acceptance that the member should be given some control over the asset that they have. However, while offering flexibility allows members to tailor their benefits towards what they really need, it also allows opportunities for things to go wrong. There are all those behavioral elements that you need to consider. And from experience, when you tend to offer members choices as to the contributions they can make, they all tend to go for the lowest one as opposed to the highest one. And sometimes the solution lies in appropriate defaults. But maybe we need to be a bit smart about the sort of defaults um, that we set and making sure those are appropriate for the life stage of the individual or maybe even for the industry in which the individual works. Extending the retirement age is something which 28% of the audience thought would help in terms of improving, improving replacement ratios. And it certainly can help. However, it's going to improve your replacement ratio in additive terms by 3 to 10%. So it's not the silver bullet. It's not going to take your replacement ratio from 20% and hey presto, you now have a 75% replacement ratio. So it needs to be seen in the context of other improvements you'd make to the fund. Obviously, the people who benefit from this the most are people with really bad accumulated credits because the additional period of service is proportionately quite big relative to their past service. However, extending the retirement age is actually a relatively complex discussion. And it's something that members don't seem particularly fond of and employers don't seem particularly fond of either. And there are a couple of things that one needs to consider when having a conversation about extending the retirement age. Firstly, as people age, the variation in their job performance becomes much greater. So some people might be perfectly capable of continuing to work until they're 80, whereas other people might have a much greater decline in health before age 65, and they simply can't work that long. In addition, there's often great variability within jobs. Certain jobs lend themselves to later retirement ages, and certain jobs lend themselves to earlier retirement ages. 
And sometimes within an employer and within a fund, you can have a huge range of jobs. Productivity considerations are very important, provided that the employer is willing to make um, concessions or to adapt things in the workplace to accommodate workers who are aging, there's often a very good chance that productivity won't be adversely affected at all by workers working beyond the current retirement age of 65. However, that's an individual employer choice. Employee interests also need to be considered. There are studies that show that for certain groups of workers, making them work longer could kill them. That's obviously not in anyone's best interest. So you need to consider quite carefully how the employee is going to benefit in terms of their health or not benefit in terms of their health in terms of extending that retirement age. And the final issue, and a politically sensitive one, is the issue of youth unemployment. Would extending the retirement age just make the situation worse? Now, this is a very, very difficult question. However, a number of Nobel Prize winning economists don't seem to think so in that if this is introduced slowly, it shouldn't, the market will have time to adapt and it shouldn't necessarily lead to massive unemployment. And if you think about it, it's not as if youth unemployment went through the roof when we equalize retirement ages for men and women. So why would increasing the retirement age by a year or two fundamentally change the youth unemployment statistics? So there are a number of complex considerations to take into account if you are going to have the conversation about extending retirement ages. And then there's the communication issue. Now, I mentioned earlier that the part of the decline in projected replacement ratios that worried me the most was the fact that most of it's driven by bond yields, which might not be immediately apparent to a member, particularly when looking at their fund credit level. Now, a lot of members do get projected benefit statements, which in theory should be alerting them to those risks. However, I'm not sure how much work has been done in making sure that the benefit statements act accurately convey the risks that members face. And there are actually eight principles of effective communication for benefit statements. And these each pose a challenge to each of us who are working in the industry. So firstly, there's the effective communication of risks. So which risks are being communicated in benefit projection statements? And how are those risks communicated? Most benefit projection statements only focus on investment risk, not on risks related to annuitization. Secondly, the communication should be fit for purpose. Now, in the UK, half of fund members throw away their benefit statement without reading it. And the other half do not understand, and of the half that do read it, 50% have no clue what it means. So if we're communicating in order to get members to actually do something and get themselves out of that horrible pattern where their replacement ratio is drifting slowly towards zero, what do we actually want members to do when they receive their benefit statement? The third principle is meaningful and realistic illustrations. Now this poses a very big challenge even to those of us who've passed communications. And that is how do you convey technical information correctly and in a legally responsible manner and still make it clear to users? Perhaps one doesn't remember once one has been using them for a really long time, but you didn't know how to read graphs intuitively. They're actually not intuitive tools. You're probably taught to read graphs and interpret graphs in grade 10. And a lot of our members don't have the benefit of that sort of education. The fourth principle is reasonable and consistent assumptions. 
And the challenge there is, do your assumptions match the new economic reality? Things have changed quite remarkably in recent years. So if your benefit statements don't take those changes into account, members might get a nasty surprise when it's too late to do anything. The next principle is sensitivity to assumptions need to be demonstrated. Again, which assumptions are you going to sensitivity test and how are you going to show that in a way that a layperson can understand and take action? Benefit statements also need to be balanced and complete, which raises a question as to reader friendliness. How do you set out the information so that the member understands all the terms and conditions and the fine print, but still knows what they need to do? In addition, there needs to be a statement of principal assumptions and key terms. But the question is, do members really understand layman's terms? I have an honor student at the moment who's looking at benefit projection statements. And there's a wealth of evidence to show that some of the things that we regard as key terms, like annuity, the average member actually doesn't understand at all. So finally, there's the principle of outlining the options available to members. What do we want members to do when they get a benefit projection statement? Do we clearly set that out and tell them what to do next? Otherwise, we're setting ourselves up for just producing mountains of paper that no one will ever read or act on. So I didn't mean to paint that grim a picture of the industry, but I think we can see that the position of defined contribution fund members isn't particularly healthy. And we've heard from a number of people today that that's going to have implications, certainly for their post-retirement decisions, as well as for what National Treasury is going to propose in terms of the reforms. So I finished ahead of schedule. So we actually have time for a discussion and for some debate as to what we should be doing. Um, I'd like to ask a question, seeing as the audience is still sort of formulating theirs. Um, we've got the National Treasury proposal that sort of says that contributions should be tax deductible up to 22 and a half. Uh, that would include insurance costs and admin costs. So your 19.8 shows us that most members are not going to get there. What would your proposal be to Treasury in terms of that new structure? I think the 22.5% limit is definitely a step in the right direction in that if you take 22.5, you subtract risk and you subtract admin, you get pretty close to the 19.8%. However, what it doesn't allow for is the fact that over someone's life cycle, they have different financial needs it might not be optimal for a member to save the same contribution rate from the age of 25 to the age of 65. In fact, there are a lot of models that actually show that your real retirement saving kicks up after the age of 30 or 35. So I would really love to see either increased limits or the way those limits are... The w I would like to see responsible communication of the limits. I think the... 22.5% is a tax deductibility limit. It's not a limit as to how much you can contribute. When the medical aid um, tax expenditure subsidy was changed to a tax credit, lots of people lost, lost the tax, a tax benefit. However, people didn't rush from the medical aid option they were on to a cheaper option in order to be able to maximize their tax benefit. People chose the product that was appropriate to them and that they could afford, and the tax consideration was secondary. And I would really like people to view that 22.5% and the 27.5% in a similar light. Um, one of the proposals that we did put forward was that the maximum 300,000, that mm -hmm. should apply and they should scrap the 22.5. Because we really don't believe that 
lower paid workers have the ability to sort of arm the system? Um, Megan, having listened to um, Clem Santa this morning, I just wanted to know, did you um, scenario test your assumptions? Because I know if you do projections into the future for so many years, um, a 1% in uh, a different um, direction can actually have quite a, a big result. We didn't, this, we didn't scenario test. Um, what we did is used our best estimate projection basis because what we really wanted to do was give people an idea of what members should be seeing in terms of their projection statements. And obviously, they're going to be sensitive to the assumptions used. So I mean, internally, we have a commitment to regularly updating our projection basis. Um, I'd like to ask a question about um, younger members providing for their retirement when they have not yet paid off their houses. And they do, in fact, this is part of the they do need post-retirement housing as well as post-retirement income. And it, it makes tax sense to pay off your bond before you pay for your pension. Uh, but then there are also questions of, and there's also the question of what you can earn in the pension fund relative, relative to the interest rate you're paying on your bond. So it's quite a, there's quite a lot of questions that relate to that, to that issue. I just wondered if you thought, thought them through. Exactly. And I think that was the point that I perhaps alluded to but didn't make clear earlier about the variable contributions to retirement funds in that, yes, people do have a lot more financial obligations when they're younger, and it might make sense to allow a lot more flexibility into how much they can contribute. Where we need to be careful, though, is to make sure that at some point people do start saving for retirement, and we don't have situations where people just buy bigger and bigger houses and keep that mortgage going virtually indefinitely until they hit 50 and then start saving. Because unless we are then um, simultaneously extending the retirement age, they won't quite get there. I mean, there are a couple of models which unfortunately don't necessarily work here for tax reasons where people pay their mortgage through their pension fund. So you get used to paying a large contribution rate. It pays for your house, and as soon as that's paid off, it immediately starts going into the accumulation for pension. As I said, unfortunately, that doesn't work under our tax system. It works in some other regimes, though. Rob, I just want to tell you a cautionary tale on that note. Uh, when we set up Fifth Quadrant in 1998, two of us, being Anthony Lester and myself, decided that we would opt out of the pension fund that we were setting up for staff in order to pay off our bonds, which we then did. And then three or four years later, we wanted to rejoin the pension fund and then, in fact, thanks to Bruce Cameron, uh, rather than to our own uh, insight and knowledge, we discovered that SARS takes a very dim view of employers who allow members to opt in and out of their pension funds, uh, except at the time when the pension fund is first set up. So it remains an irony that uh, uh, Ant Lester and myself uh, are not members of any occupational pension fund at this point in time. The cautionary aspect to this um, is that, of course, uh, we have accumulated discretionary savings outside the pension fund net. And uh, the comments I made earlier this morning about the temptations to use those discretionary savings unwisely, I think certainly apply to me. I'm not going to speak for Ant, but uh, I, I would certainly say that... Um, uh, the forced discipline of saving, I, I'm, I'm not sure it's a bad thing uh, to force members to save uh, while they're in employment uh, and accept that they've got then the double burden of pension fund contributions and mortgage repayments. I'm, I'm not sure that that's a bad thing. Thanks, Arthur.